I'm glad that you're joining in on this second session in our series on death and dying. Again, I'm James McMillan, and I'm a family physician with a particular interest and clinical focus on palliative care, and I'm privileged to be here to share some thoughts with you today. In our last session, we sketched a quick picture of some contemporary responses to death and dying. We saw how, compared with previous generations, we are tending to delay death, relocate death, ignore death, deny death, refuse to accept death, attempt to control death, trying to redefine a good death, and ultimately minimizing death. In this session, I want to look at more of a distinctively Christian approach to death and dying. Christian tradition and theology have much to offer, clear teaching, practical wisdom, and ultimately an enduring hope. If you're not a Christian, but have stumbled upon this video and are curious about how the Christian tradition addresses this topic, I hope that you'll find it helpful. And if you are a follower of Christ, then I trust that examining Christ's example and teaching will be a helpful exercise in shaping both our thinking and our action as we encounter death and dying. As with the other sessions in this series, this video will just be scratching the surface of an enormous topic. But again, I hope that it will be a helpful introduction for further reflection, reflection and study. And again, there are many helpful resources that explore this topic in greater detail, and I'd like to recommend them and acknowledge a handful that have been helpful in shaping my thinking and in informing these sessions. The End of the Christian Life by J. Todd Billings, The Art of Dying by Rob Mole, On Death by Tim Keller, A Faithful Farewell by Marilyn McIntyre, and Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. So how should Christians understand and respond to death and dying? Well, I, th I think that with any question of how Christians should think and act in regard to a specific topic, an essential starting point is asking, how did Jesus think and act? So I want to start by looking at one passage which reveals Jesus' response to death and dying. It's in the 11th chapter of John, where we read about the illness and subsequent death of Jesus's friend, Lazarus. We won't take time to read the entire passage, but I would encourage you to do so on your own. For now, I just want to highlight some key portions. So as you probably know, Lazarus was a follower and a friend of Jesus, as were his sisters, Mary and Martha. And when the moment of trial comes with Lazarus falling seriously ill, their response is to call out and plead for their friend and Lord to come to their aid. We see that Jesus views this illness and Lazarus's subsequent death as an enemy, an intruder into God's good order. But nonetheless, we also read in verse 4 that Jesus views the illness and death as an opportunity for God to be glorified. Then, Somewhat surprisingly, Jesus shows no apparent urgency to respond to their call for help. In verse 5, it plainly and startlingly says that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It seems that our timing and God's timing do not always completely overlap. After some discussion with his disciples, Jesus, knowing that Lazarus has succumbed to the illness and died, responds in verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, 
but I go to awaken him. This language of reframing death as sleep anticipates the language of the early church, and particularly Paul, who regularly referred to the followers of Jesus who died as having, quote, fallen asleep. So then, when Jesus travels to Bethany, where Lazarus is buried and where Mary and Martha are grieving, we see two primary responses to the grief of his friends. In verse 32, we read, Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So in response to death, Jesus is not impassive or emotionless. Rather, we see that he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. Tim Keller points out that the original Greek actually carries the idea of anger. And in fact, a translation that perhaps better captures the depth of the emotion would be that he was snorting with anger. This death is a disruption. It's a distortion of the creation that he loves. Therefore, anger is an appropriate response. And then in the famously shortest verse in the Bible, we read that Jesus wept. The God of the universe, the the all-powerful, the creator and sustainer of all things, feels that in response to death, tears and grief are suitable and necessary. And and what makes the necessity of these tears all the more persuasive is by what follows them. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read John 11 before, the death of Lazarus is shockingly reversed. Despite having been dead and buried for four days, Jesus displays his power over death by resuscitating Lazarus and restoring him to health. Now, if Jesus, fully knowing that he was immediately about to raise Lazarus from the dead— still felt that tears were warranted and urgent, I think we can be sure that tears and grief are an appropriate response for us too. But before that astonishing climax of the story, the raising of Lazarus, we see one other response from Jesus. Not only does does he meet his followers with sympathy, anger, and grief, but he also meets them with a message. In verse 25, Jesus makes the astounding claim, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. On their face, these claims are simply breathtaking, but to validate them, outrageous as they might seem, Jesus gives a visual demonstration, a parable of this ultimate promise. With simple forthrightness, he just walks up to the tomb and cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And defying the natural order and all human experience, the dead man quickens and emerges from the tomb alive and whole. This is just one instance in the Gospels where we see Jesus interact with death, but I think that it's a helpful grounding to inform our Christian understanding of death and dying. And so with this backdrop in mind, I'd like to try to articulate some of the big ideas that Christian theology offers as we wrestle with the painful reality of death and dying. First off, death is an inevitable part of the human experience. 
we live in a world that is fundamentally broken and one in which, consequently, death is unavoidable. We are not promised preservation from physical death in this, our current scene of redemptive history. However, although death is inescapable, Christian theology also maintains that death was not part of God's initial good creation, and nor will it be part of God's ultimate new creation. When we look at the bookends of Scripture, we see that death is an intruder. In Genesis, we see that death is a disruption of what God created and what he had called, quote, very good. It had no place in his initial plan, but was a result of rebellion and a manifestation of the brokenness of our fallen world. Furthermore, when we zoom out and look at the end of the story, we see that death has no place in the new restored creation. In Revelation 21, we read that death will be no more. So it's not surprising then that we see death referred to in scripture as an enemy. If you're a Harry Potter fan, you'll be familiar with the phrase, but you may not know that the original source was actually St. Paul, who in 1 Corinthians 15 wrote, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy, a foe, an adversary, and it is an enemy with undeniable force. Death is also a schism, separating the material from the immaterial. God's creation is described as material, physical, corporeal, which is also infused with spirit, both intermingling and becoming a living soul. Contrary to the perspective of the Gnostics, this material creation is not evil or something that we are ultimately striving to escape into a more pure, undiluted spiritual realm. No, rather the, the physical, the material, the corporeal, is good and intended to be united with the spiritual, a union that is described by God in his own words as very good, a mingling of heaven and earth. And this fusion of physical and spiritual was never intended to be separated, but death is a rip in the cosmic order. It's a divorcing, a severing of God's good creation and his ultimate intention. Therefore, Death is a loss. It's a privation. It's not only a loss to the individual who dies, but also to the community from whom he's been snatched. When a loved one dies, you don't just go back to your state of being before your lives were connected. When a spouse loses a partner, he doesn't just go back to who he was before being married. In fact, we have unique language to describe this loss, this privation, I'm not just single, I'm a widow or a widower. I'm not just a child, I'm an orphan. And as Carl Truman has pointed out, perhaps as a way of indicating how unspeakable the loss is, we don't have a word to describe a parent who has lost a child. Since death is an enemy, this schism, this loss, this privation, it's little wonder that death often provokes emotions of anger and grief, as we saw in Jesus's response to Lazarus. Scripture and Christian tradition testify to death's inherent violence, a framework that J. Todd Billings refers to as the Augustinian side of death. This view of death as a horror, as something alien, is most acutely felt 
in what we perceive to be premature deaths, the loss of people whose lives are cut short, perhaps leaving behind young children or leaving behind interrupted careers or missions that were just gaining momentum. So death certainly is an enemy, a horror. However, when seen from another standpoint, death can paradoxically be seen as a mercy. Life in our broken world is marked by suffering, pain, frustrated relationships, injustice, and corruption. Imagine someone whose life is a daily struggle with chronic pain, or besetting sins, or ongoing functional decline. Now, imagine telling them that they will never die. This race has no finish line. These agonizing experiences will just go on and on and on. As painful as death is, it can also be viewed as a merciful exit from a broken world. Furthermore, the days of decline leading to death can be an opportunity for service and witness, an occasion for drawing family and friends together, for mending fences, for reconciliation, and for unique communion with God as one one's life draws to a close. J. Todd Billings refers to this as the Irenean side of death. And he points out that the Lord's work is expansive enough to encompass both the Irenean and the Augustinian sides of death. Our deaths usually won't fit neatly into either category, but will be an intermingling of the two. He goes on to say that this combination won't make for bland soup. No, the contrast will remain sweet and sour together, soft and sharp. For us and our loved ones, our own dying will likely be both an offense and a gift, an affliction and a consolation, a catastrophe and a strange work of providence. Our Christian faith provides consolation and comfort knowing that Jesus is a fellow sufferer who has walked where we walk, who has drank the bitter cup of grief, who has shared pain, and who has tasted death. Hebrews 4 assures us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He's not a distant, holy other deity who has no share in our experience. No, Isaiah describes Jesus as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And Hebrews explains that he can deal gently with us since he himself was beset with weakness. J. Todd Billings describes it like this. Thus, in a breathtaking paradox, on Christ's cross, the temple himself experienced alienation of being far from the temple. The light of the world entered into the darkness. The life-giving presence of God descended to the deep pit of shale. This is a blinding mystery, but at this point, one morsel of consolation should be enough to cleanse our palates, to ready us for the right kind of food. If we live part of our lives in the shadows of shale, at least we have some very good company. Jesus' experience as a fellow sufferer, sufferer is profoundly comforting, but beyond this, he's also a victor, a conqueror over death. And Christian teaching maintains that what fundamentally robs death of its ultimate power is the Christian hope that although death is an end, it is not the ultimate end. Jesus refers to the dead Lazarus 
And St. Paul refers to dead believers as sleeping. And they can say that without embarrassment because the reality is that sleepers wake up. Death does not get the final word. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death is a loss, but death is not an ultimate loss. Death is a horror, but it is simultaneously a gateway into ultimate gain. We are upheld by the promise that because of Christ's work of redemption, he is making all things new. And therefore, the final scene in this human adventure is a banquet, a celebration. Our story is not ultimately a tragedy. Rather, it's a comedy in the original sense of the word, a story with a happy ending, a tale where we can rest assured that all shall be well. Although death is a schism separating the material from the spiritual, this also is not the final word. Again, Christian teaching maintains that the material is part of God's good design. Though corrupted and broken, it is still good. And again, too often we let these Gnostic tendencies creep in, suggesting that the physical is evil and the spiritual is good. But Christian theology teaches that in Christ, God is making all things new. His ultimate good plan is for the renovation of the material world, including our bodies. He intends for the restoration of creation, the bringing back together of heaven and earth, the reunion of flesh and spirit in new redeemed bodies. Our intended birthright is not to be some disembodied immaterial soul after death. No, at the restoration of all things, our full humanity will be restored, granting us new, material, physical, redeemed bodies. Often our culture's tendency is to assume that if there is life after death, then that existence is immaterial or ghost-like or vague or shadowy. C.S. Lewis makes this point vividly in his story, The Great Divorce, in which people take a journey and encounter the redeemed residents of God's new creation in heaven. While he's quick to tell his readers that um, this story is just a work of imagination and not something from which they should draw firm theological conclusions, his parable is still striking. Those individuals who go on this excursion to heaven find that they are the ones who are wispy and shadowy. It's the redeemed ones in heaven who are more real, solid, and concrete. The visitors in heaven are the ones who seem ghostly in comparison. They're unable to even bend the heavenly blades of grass, which are far more solid and substantial than any earthly blade of grass. He says, reality is harsh to the feet of shadows. And that's where we find ourselves now. We are dwelling in the shadowlands, 
lands marked, to be sure, by beauty and wonder and bearing the stamp of a good creator, but also lands marked by brokenness, corruption, pain, weariness, and death. Romans 8.28 says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here again, we see this intermingling, the first fruits and the groaning, the Irenean and the Augustinian. Some theologians refer to this present stage of redemptive history as the already and the not yet. In Christ, God has set in motion the work of redemption, but we're awaiting its full consummation. We see death as an enemy, and we know that its days are numbered, but we also acknowledge that it hasn't been fully destroyed yet. I think it's like someone playing a game of chess who, looking ahead, can see a definite checkmate in several moves. The ultimate outcome of the game is secured, but in the remaining moves, he might still lose some pieces. These are true and real losses, but they're not ultimate losses in light of what's coming. Or it's like that stretch of World War II between D-Day and V-Day. The victory at the beaches of Normandy was a decisive turning point that laid the foundation for the Allies' ultimate and complete victory at V-Day. But between D-Day and V-Day, there were still many battles, still many casualties, but the final outcome was secure. And that's where we're living, in this in-between time. The first fruits are securely ours, but the ultimate harvest is still in the distance. And so, with all of creation, we groan. Like Jesus at the grave of Lazarus, we weep and we are angry. And these are appropriate and right responses. And, like Jesus, we cling to the knowledge that death is not the end. We hold to the promise that he is the resurrection and the life. Paul unites these two postures in 1 Thessalonians, where he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We are to grieve and we are to have hope. Too often we see these as mutually exclusive or, or we can tend to emphasize one at the expense of the other. In our last session, we noted how a common tendency in our culture is to try to ignore or deny or otherwise minimize death. We refuse to look at full in the face and to grieve appropriately. On the other hand, we might try to grieve without hope. Elsewhere, Paul famously names three fundamental Christian virtues, faith, love, and hope. Too often we forget that hope is a Christian posture that we must not neglect. Yes, we mourn deeply and achingly, but we also grieve with hope. Tim Keller provides a helpful illustration to explain how the seemingly opposite postures of grief and hope can coexist. He says, for many years, People preserved meat by salting it. Salt cured the meat so it didn't decay. Similarly, unless you salt your grief with hope, your grief will go bad. When we grieve and rage in the face of death, 
we're responding appropriately to a great evil. But Christians have a hope that can be rubbed into our sorrow and anger the way salt is rubbed into a meat. Neither stifling your grief nor giving way to despair is right. Neither repressed anger nor unchecked rage is good for your soul. But pressing hope into your grief makes you wise, compassionate, humble, and tender-hearted. So grieve fully, yet with profound hope. Keller goes on then to unpack the character of our Christian hope. First, it is a personal hope. The Christian faith maintains that God's work of redemption and restoration is both corporate and individual. After death, you're not reabsorbed into some great indistinct cosmic oneness, like a drop of water returning to the ocean. No, you as an individual will be raised incorruptible, retaining your identity and your unique history, redeemed and restored. Our hope is also personal in that scripture seems to suggest that interpersonal relationships will be part of God's new creation. Returning to 1 Thessalonians we read that on the final day of restoration, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Notice that word together. In other words, you will be reunited with those you previously lost. And our restored relationships will be marked by perfect, pure love. Keller goes on to riff on Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Heaven is a world of love, in which Edwards argues that the greatest happiness we can know is to be loved by another person, but he acknowledges that on earth, the greatest love relationships are like a pipe that's so clogged that only a little water or love actually gets through. In heaven, however, all these clogs are removed, and the love we will experience will be infinitely, inexpressibly greater than anything we have known here. He continues, On earth, we hide behind facades of fear of being rejected. But that means we never experience the transforming power of being fully known, yet truly loved at the same time. In addition, we love selfishly or enviously, which disrupts, weakens, and even ends love relationships. Finally, our love relationships are darkened by the fear of losing the other person, which can make us so controlling that we often drive people away or in other cases, become fearful of making any commitments at all. And so Edwards concludes that by declaring that all of these things that reduce love in this world to a mere trickle at the bottom of a riverbed are removed when we get to heaven, where love is this endless deluge and fountain of delight and bliss flowing in and out of us infinitely and eternally. The Christian hope is for a personal future of love relationships. Secondly, our hope is a material hope. Again, as we reviewed earlier, the Christian faith departs from that Gnostic notion that the material is bad and the spiritual is good. We recognize that our current experience of the fallen world is marked by goodness and beauty, but also by pain, decay, violence, exploitation, corruption, and sadness. However, the God who is making all things new promises a new heaven and earth where the physical nature of our bodies and our environment will be whole, where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, 
nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Finally, our hope is a beatific hope, which is a historical and theological word describing what we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, us being with the Lord. Whereas now we just see in a mirror dimly, on that day, we will see face to face. 1 John 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This beatific vision describes our deepest longing where we will see our God in his full blazing holiness and yet not shrink back in fear. We will be fully known and fully loved. So this is the character of our hope. It's a personal hope, a material hope, and a beatific hope. So we can mourn as those who have hope. We can grieve, but not become captives as slaves to the fear of death. Like Jesus at the grave of Lazarus, we mourn, we grieve, we're angered, and we groan with all of creation. But we do this with the assurance and the comfort that he has gone before us, has experienced suffering and death, and has triumphed over it. He is the resurrection and the life.